from a responsibility to a relationship. That you are not praying because you ought to. But you are praying because you get to. You get to address the God of the universe. And He wants to hear from you. He wants to hear your voice and communicate with you on a daily basis. Um, it's an enormous privilege that you have. And so I want to take advantage of that enormous privilege here as we begin our time in God's Word. So if you would bow with me. God, our Heavenly Father, I pray that we would not ever get over the reality that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead. And that through faith in Him, we have the enormous privilege of being called sons of the King of all creation. And we have the enormous privilege, therefore, of coming into the very throne room of heaven and addressing the King of Kings. Father, help us to, um, to relish and enjoy that privilege of communicating with you and hearing you speak back to us uh, by your word as your Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see it. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was a young seminarian at Dallas Seminary, I took a class on the doctrine of God, which... Uh, taught everything that the Bible says about God and His power and His attributes and how He relates to us, and exploring the wonderful mystery that is God's own triune existence. Uh, it was a mind-blowing class. Still one of the best things I've ever had the privilege of participating in, uh, both because of what I learned in it and also the friendship that developed between me and my professor, uh, a man I dearly love named Scott Harrell. But as we were learning all these um, amazing the theological concepts and exploring the Bible together in new ways, I was continually impressed as I took that class by the bigness and the power uh, of our God, of all the ways in which God is truly beyond us in every way. You know, the theological word for that is that God is transcendent. That He is beyond all of our categories, beyond all of our experience, beyond all of our ability to wrap our arms truly around Him and comprehend all that He is. And, and God has a transcendent power and a majesty. He dwells, the Scripture says, in unapproachable light. Uh, he, has, he is so vast in His power and majesty that no one has ever seen Him or can come near Him with mortal eyes. Right? But as I've gotten older, one of the things that I have become increasingly impressed by and amazed by, especially as we come in the time of year toward Christmas, I'm reminded of God's humility. Of His the theological word is eminence. His nearness to us. 
You know, in our world, as we as we approach someone who is great, have you noticed this? That the, the bigger and more important someone is in our world, the less accessible they are to ordinary people. Right? Like, if you wanted to go see your state representative, you better call and make an appointment. And you're going to have to go ahead and uh, connect with his or her secretary and then you're going to have to have some reason to justify the visit. You can't just show up and knock on the door, right? And if you want to, if you want to, if you want to meet the president of the United States, well, you better be a donor, right? <laughs> and of some significant amount of money, you better be a mover and a shaker. You are not going to uh, be received like Abraham Lincoln. Uh, did back during the Civil War by a guy who walks down in his dressing gown and socks. Okay, you're not going to get that kind of a reception, right? Because the President of the United States is the leader of the free world, uh, such as it is, right? And he he has. He, you're not going to walk into the Oval uh, just any old way that you want, right? At least that's the way things work in our world. But nothing could be less like God than that. Think about that. Here you have the being who spoke the entire universe into existence with a word. The biggest, most powerful being that exists and has always existed and brings all other beings into existence. And God, this being, became incarnate as a creature. Let's remember that He formed out of dirt to start out with. Think about that one. He took on a human nature through the womb of not a not a great and powerful person, but a peasant girl. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think that. But what ought to come to your mind at a minimum is how humble God really is. I want to show you a portion of the story of how God became a human being took on a human nature through the womb of a peasant woman. And it's found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 26. And if you're able, I invite you to stand with me as I read the story. This is what the Word of God says by the Holy Spirit. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call His name Jesus. He will be great and be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give Him 
the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Father, help us as we read the words of this story we've heard a hundred times to be freshly impressed by the wonder that God became a man. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, you'll look if you look at the text, you'll notice that it starts out, verse 26, in the sixth month. And you might wonder what that means. Are we talking about June? Like, what, what are we talking about? Um, and if you'll remember last week, you, you'll see that this same angel, Gabriel, told uh, old Zechariah that he and his senior citizen wife, Elizabeth, were going to have a son that they should name John. Right? Those of you who are older parents, uh, you know, there's still hope for you. Uh, you could have an angel visitation. <laughs> Wouldn't that be neat, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, it'd be exciting. Okay, <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you, you know, be like, am I am I gonna am I gonna change diapers or you know uh, and run out of teeth at the same time, you know? But um, but in any case, they're gonna have a son. His name is John. So this is Luke telling us that Gabriel comes to Mary when Elizabeth is already six months pregnant. Elizabeth is already six months along. Think about that. You've got your AARP card in the mail, your walker in front of you, and you're expecting your firstborn son. Okay? <laughs> and when Gabriel comes, he comes to this humble woman in humble circumstances. She's a humble woman. Mary is probably in her mid-teens. She's maybe 15, 16 years old. Girls got married shortly after they hit puberty. They hit puberty later than they do now uh, because people didn't get a lot to eat back then. And nutrition was not great. Uh, they got married also young because they didn't live terribly long. When you account for infant mortality in the first century, the average lifespan was about 24 Okay, that's because most people died before they got out of their teenage years, right? So the upper limit is probably somewhere around 60, right? Um, people died young of all kinds of stuff. They didn't have all the vaccines and medical treatment and whatever that, that we have today. And if you were wealthy, maybe you lived a bit longer, but... You know, you look at the lifespan of some of the kings of the Old Testament, like the guy lived to be like 50. And then he was an old man and he died, right? A lot of times people had it, it was a different life. It was a lot harder. 
But this woman, this girl, is essentially a nobody. She's of no particular significance. She has nothing special about her other than her ancestral links to the ancient kings of Judah who last ruled in any real way about 600 years prior to her. Think about that. 600 years is a while back. I did the Ancestry Project a few years ago when the kids were doing genealogy stuff, and I thought, well, I'll see how far we can get back. I got back to the 1500s in France. Uh, my ancestors 15 generations ago were French Huguenots who came on a boat over to, um, uh, over to South Carolina, some of them uh, landed, and, um, and built a church there in Charleston and so forth, right? They, were being, they got tired of being murdered by Catholics, and they, they came over here where they could establish their own, their own belief system, right? And, um, but that's about as far back as I can get. And I'm like, 500 years, that's a long time, right? This is 600 years ago. It was the last kings of Judah. 600 years. That gets you back to, what is that? Somebody do the, do the history major math for me. Is that 1,423? That's before Columbus. Okay. That's a long time. So to say, well, you know, my ancestors were kings. Yeah, 600 years ago, right? And at the moment, you're a peasant, right? On top of that, she is living in Nazareth, a village in Galilee. Uh, so because of that, it's a place with two strikes against it from the Jewish perspective. Number one, it's in Galilee, which is not that far from uh, Herod's palace in Caesarea by the sea. And so it's an area that's full of Romans and other Gentile people. And the Jews who lived in this part of, of, of ancient Israel were regarded as impious for living among all these sinful Romans and Gentiles. Right? If you were really religious, you would live down in Judea near Jerusalem. And in fact, if you were really religious, you lived actually in Jerusalem itself. And Nazareth in particular is a little village of no account. In fact, I've been to Nazareth. You can fit the entire village inside this building. The entire thing. It's not 200 houses. It's a tiny little map dot of a place. And on top of that, um, it's so insignificant that it is not even mentioned in the Old Testament anywhere. Okay, Like if you read your Old Testament uh, through, which by the way, in a few weeks here, we'll be starting up another Through the Bible in a Year plan with Pastor Joe. Uh, if you want to be in that, let me know. Um, we're about to wrap up this one in about 19 days. Um, but if you want to read through the Bible uh, with me, we can do that. But one of the things you'll notice as you read your Old Testament is you get all these lists of all the inheritance of all the tribes of Israel in various places. And they list all the towns and villages and landmarks and so forth that signify where your tribe has their inheritance. Nazareth shows up zero times in any of those lists. It's not even mentioned anywhere. It's a tiny little place in an area overrun with Gentiles. 
And, uh, and there's just this ordinary peasant girl. Later in this chapter, Mary will refer to her circumstances as her humble state. Verse 48. In other words, Mary is essentially a nobody from nowhere, an ordinary woman who is looking forward to marriage to an ordinary man, to spending her life working very hard to raise ordinary children alongside her husband and to worship God in a hard place at a hard time for her people. And it is to her that God sends Gabriel with a message, greeting her and calling her highly favored, and telling her the Lord God is with her. That is, that she is the special recipient of God's grace to her. It says, greetings you who are highly favored. O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, um, this is one of those places where translation really matters, okay? Um, because the Latin, the, the, when, when the Bible, the New Testament was originally written, it was written in Greek. Well, people in the West uh, got to a point where they were divided from the East in the Eastern Roman Empire, and they didn't speak Greek anymore, and so they needed a translation into the language everybody spoke, which at that time was Latin. And so there was a man named Jerome who was commissioned to translate the Bible into Latin, and it was called the Vulgate, after the, from which we get our word vulgar, which means common or ordinary. It was the language of the common people. Okay, And when he translated it into Latin, he translated it as, Hail Mary, full of grace. Y'all heard that anywhere? Okay, that's where this comes from. Hail Mary, full of grace, is, the, is how this is rendered into Latin. The problem is it's a bad translation because it makes it seem like Mary is the person who has a lot of grace to give to people rather than that she is the recipient of great grace from God, which is the emphasis of the actual text. Okay? It's not that Mary is full of grace, it's that God is full of grace and is giving a bunch of it to Mary in a special way. Okay? It's a bad translation, sorry, but it is. Um, and the idea is, is that God is full of grace, that He is giving great grace to Mary by, giving, uh, by enabling her to bring Jesus into the world. So the point of these verses is that this humble woman in very humble circumstances... I mean, you need to picture a, a, like a mud brick hut. Because that's what people lived in back then. Maybe, maybe, maybe they had stone in the walls, but a lot of times not. A hut is going to get the biggest blessing that any woman in history ever received. She will bear the Son of God. Now Gabriel doesn't drop all that news at once, probably because it would be too overwhelming for a 16-year-old girl to hear all of that all at once. But she is going to be the recipient of unique grace in the form of a unique gift from God Himself. She will bear the Christ child. And think about this. The Son of God and His incarnation 
will look in part just like her. Now, I think that's that's amazing to think about um, for a couple reasons. One, the idea that God would so condescend, would so um, be so humble as to take on a human nature and look like an ordinary person. But also, remember how the story begins way back in Genesis. God creates a perfect creation uh, with a man and a woman. And who's the first sinner in the world? Eve. And, it, and she is told that through the seed of the woman, the Redeemer will come. Now women do not have seed. So how is this going to work? How's that going to work? Well, there's going to have to be some miracle that God does to bring about a woman becoming pregnant with a child who has delivered the world. And this is where that happens. Eve was deceived by a fallen angel into bringing sin into the world. And of course, Adam chose full knowing what was about to happen. He was with her when it, when it went down, according to the Scriptures. So Adam is held responsible because she was tricked. He made a deliberate choice. The sin enters into the world through Eve, and therefore it is through Eve, in a sense, that the redemption of the world comes. It's an amazing thing. But on top of that, um, God gives salvation through His Son. Keep looking at the text with me. And After the angel greets Mary, she is initially troubled and wonders what the angel could possibly mean. By the way, if you meet an angel, it's a scary experience apparently because every time one shows up, the first thing he says often is, don't be afraid. Okay? He says, don't be afraid. Always reassuring when you meet an angel. Uh, second, you will conceive and bear a son, and you're to name him Jesus. Mary is going to have a baby boy, and that baby boy is to be given a fairly common at the time Jewish name, which is uh, the, the name Jesus. Now, Jesus is the Greek form. And Luke is writing in Greek, so he gives us the Greek form. But in Hebrew, it's uh, Yeshua, Joshua, how we would render it in English. Okay? It means Yahweh saves. So you're going to give birth to a son and he is going to be uh, known as Savior. And uh, so far, so good. And if that's where it stopped, it wouldn't be clear why you'd need an angelic announcement for this. But of course, there's more. Gabriel continues. He says, He will be great, be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So basically, Gabriel is now quoting Isaiah chapter 9, 6 and 7, which prophesy about the coming of the son of David to be born, whose kingdom and whose reign over Israel will have no end. And he's also alluding to 2 Samuel 7, where God calls the son of David my son, in the context of 
of prophesying to David that one of his descendants will always have kingship over Israel. And if that's where it stopped, then both Mary herself and we who live afterwards would have to conclude that, that what Gabriel is announcing is the birth of an ordinary man to whom God will restore uh, the earthly kingdom to David's family as all the Jews of that day and as Mary herself were hoping. In other words, all he would be talking about is an earthly restoration of an earthly dynasty, an earthly kingdom with Mary as mother to the king. Which would be awesome for her and Joseph. I mean, would it not? Right? Um, you, if you are mother and father to the king of a nation, you're, you're, you're doing okay. Right? All of a sudden, your, your social status and your material comfort level takes a major step up. Right? And on top of that, that would be a huge honor because when was the last king again? 600 years ago. So through my boy is going to come the restoration of the kingdom to Israel? This is amazing. Right? But God is going to tell her something much bigger than that through the angel Gabriel. And in the last five verses, we get the full glory of the Annunciation revealed. And that begins with Mary's very natural question, how can this be since I am a virgin? People in the ancient world were not dumb. They knew how things worked. <laughs> okay, And they're like, she's like, this does not make a whole lot of sense. Are you telling me? It's not a question based on doubt, but one on confusion. She's not yet married. And on top of that, she's a virgin, so how is she going to have a son? And what she's probably expecting to hear, have Gabriel ex explain is, well, you're to marry Joseph, and then once you and Joseph get married, you're going to have a baby. And then that baby, when he grows up, will become the king. And he'll throw out the Romans, and it'll, it's going to be great. Be just like the days of David and Solomon. And the kingdom will be restored. And from the Wadi of Egypt to the Euphrates River, you'll have the kingdom. Right? But that's not what Gabriel says. Instead, the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon her in such a way God's power will bring about conception in her virgin womb such that the child to be born won't merely be the son of God in the same way that David's sons were all called my sons, but will be the actual son of God. The incarnation of God Himself. And in case she's having trouble believing that, Elizabeth's pregnancy is offered to Mary as a sign that all Gabriel has said is going to come true. Mary would not have known about Elizabeth's pregnancy. For one thing, they lived very far apart um, by, uh, by ordinary means of travel in that, at, at that time of, of, uh, of history. But beyond that, remember Elizabeth has been keeping herself hidden for the last five months. So she's just now come out of seclusion and is making the announcement, oh, by the way, Zachariah and I are having a baby. <laughs> right? Uh, which is an amazing thing. But Mary would not have known that. And so Gabriel says, 
you know, your cousin, your relative, Elizabeth, is going to she have a baby also, even though it's impossible, is happening. She's already six months along. In other words, when you go see her, you'll be able to tell that she is pregnant when you get there. And, and it's a reminder and a call to Mary and he says, for nothing will be impossible with God for Mary to believe what God has sent him to proclaim that God is capable of doing all things and that he who made the body in the beginning can certainly make a woman conceive a child by his power. Amen. And don't miss Mary's response. Because this is, this is to me the most beautiful thing in this whole story, here's this teenage girl whose knowledge of God's word would have been limited to what she learned at the synagogue, maybe by what she, uh, maybe added to by what she learned by going up to the temple to worship with her family, as all religious Jews did three times a year. She may not have been able to read. She certainly wouldn't have owned a per- personal copy of the scriptures that, like you and I have. And she listens to all this incredible news that she's just been given. She knows full well what an unmarried pregnancy is going to mean for her. They didn't stone unmarried pregnant women in this day and age, but that was still the law. Is that you were to be put to death if you were immoral. And so you were scorned and looked down upon and called all kinds of dirty names and so forth. In fact, several times throughout Jesus' ministry, even as he's a grown man, he, he is challenged on the legitimacy of his birth. Oh, aren't you Mary's son? You need to hear that. We don't know who the father is, but you're Mary's kid. Right? Or isn't this the carpenter? Carpenter's boy. Because obviously Joseph wouldn't have married her if it wasn't his kid, right? She knows that that's coming. What it's going to mean for her reputation. What it's going to mean for her prospects in this very small community. And this is what she says. She yields her heart to God's will and she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Her humble circumstances and humble personal identity are matched by a humble heart that is willing to do whatever God calls her to do, no matter the cost to her personally. Now that's the story for this week. And you might be wondering how in the world this part of the story might possess any application to you in that by definition this event will never happen again. But if you lift your eyes from the physical aspects of this story a little bit, I think we can see that how God is working in Mary's life is very similar to how He continues to work in people's lives down to this day. Number one, that you need to see in this story that God comes to humble people. Mary's circumstances, her personal identity were 
humble indeed. The poorest person in this room is many times richer than Mary and Joseph were. In fact, richer than their wildest imagination. You've probably sent to Helping Hands more stuff uh, in the last year than she would have owned in her life. And yet, more important than that is the quality that she exhibits that Jesus later identifies in the Beatitudes as poor in spirit. Remember that one? Blessed are the poor in spirit for what? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. She recognizes that she brings nothing before God by which he should be impressed. Right? When you're poor in spirit, you when you come to God, you don't you don't come to him and say, "Hey, uh, I'm here. You're welcome." <laughs> right? Um, you come to God with an attitude of absolute recognition that you've got nothing by which God is supposed to be impressed. That in fact, if it were if God was going to judge fully and completely in this moment, that you would be judged and wiped out. You come with humility before the Lord. And I think the reason I'm pointing all this out is this, is that that kind of humility of being poor in spirit is a prerequisite for God's work in your life and in mine too. When you come to the end of yourself and you start seeking the Lord, recognizing that you have nothing to offer Him, but you have deep needs that only He can meet. That's when God shows up. So let me ask you, are you poor in spirit? Are you humble in this kind of a way? Or do you see yourself you know, as pretty capable as a person who wants God in his or her life, much like you want a fire extinguisher in your kitchen. Right? Glad that it's there. I hope we never have to get it out. Right? Lots of people go through their life just exactly that way in their relationship with God. It's like, well, in case of emergency, we'll break the glass. Right? But I really hope I never have to pull God into this into my life because I kind of like living my life on my own terms and doing my own thing. It's when you are broken and humble. It's when you have the attitude like a uh, like I read Philip Yancey years ago. He wrote these words and it, it, it resonated in my soul and I memorized what he wrote. He said, he said, I, I confess sometimes I follow Jesus out of a lack of good alternatives, many of which I have tried. <laughs> right? I thought, amen, Philip. Me too. Right? But when you come to God on that basis of saying, I've got nothing to offer, but I have deep needs that only you can meet. And the Lord shows up. He shows up for the desperate, for the humble, for the broken, the wounded, 
and those who were not overly impressed by their own wonderful specialness. Right? When you're poor in spirit. And when you're at that place, then He still gives salvation through His Son, Jesus. You know, just like, the, just like us, Mary was a sinner in need of salvation. Don't let anybody, don't get it confused. She was not born without sin. She did not live without sin. She had other children after this. She was a sinner in need of salvation. And she got it the same way we do. Through faith in her Son, who is also the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The reason that the poor in spirit receive the kingdom of heaven is because they are the ones who are humble enough to receive the gift of God's salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And God still offers it freely as an unexpected gift to everyone who comes to Him in faith. In fact, more than that, even after we come to faith in Jesus, God still continues to give grace and to give more and more and more gifts to us. He still saves and rescues us from the messes and the troubles of our lives the same way we gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven as the same way we continue to live our Christian life. Through a relationship with Him who loves us and continues to rescue us and continues to save us and continues to help us and continues to offer grace to help in the day-to-day struggle as well as entrance into the kingdom of heaven for eternity. You know, men and women, that God loves you so much that you can't get yourself in a mess that He can't get you out of. Fact. Now, this is not a piece of advice. Don't get yourself into a mess on purpose just to see if God will show up there. Okay? But I will tell you that you cannot get beyond the reach of God's arm. You can't go, well, yeah, I know that God is gracious and He is good, but you don't understand all the stuff that I've done. Let me tell you for sure it doesn't matter. Well, you don't know how far away from God I really am. I mean, I have been running hard the opposite direction from Him as long as I can remember. It doesn't matter. He can still reach you. And if you are His child, you can be assured of this, that He will come for you. My wife's favorite movie, I think, in the world is The Last of the Mohicans. Okay? This is a great scene in that movie. If you've not seen it, it's kind of bloody, but it's awesome. <laughs> okay. And uh and and Leatherstocking has the girl, the woman that he is in love with. And she's about to be captured by the Indians. He looks at her in the eyes and he says, You stay alive. I will come for you. No matter how far I'm coming. And he jumps out through a waterfall. The Indians capture her and then he comes. And it's majestic. Okay? It's amazing. You should see it. Okay? There's not good football on today. Watch that movie. <laughs> Alright? It's romantic. It's, it's bloodthirsty. It's amazing. 
Okay, uh, but uh, but it's a phenomenal scene, right? And the reason is, is that he loves her, and he's coming for Korah. And trust me when I say this, God loves you much more intensely than that. When you are in deep need, call out to God; He's coming for you because of the grace that is there through His Son, Jesus Christ. In addition to that, uh, He comes only when we believe His Word. God's Word has to be believed and our hearts still must submit to it in order for God's will to be accomplished in our lives. Mary says, let it be to me according to your Word. I am the Lord's servant. In other words, she has an attitude of submissive obedience. Whenever we refuse to believe God's Word and act on it, because of that belief, we miss out on the blessing God wants to give us. Submitting to to God's Word may cost us the esteem of the world. Amen? How many of you all have ever been called stupid, foolish, ignorant, backward, etc. because you follow Jesus? It's happened to me a bunch of times. Right? Why would you waste your life on all that foolishness? But here's the reality. Though submitting to God's Word may cost you the esteem of the world as it surely cost Mary the esteem of her neighbors, when you believe God's Word in such a way that you receive it and live according to it, you experience more blessing than you ever imagined. what about you? And what about me? Are there any places in Scripture where God speaks clearly to you, but you are still struggling to believe and the sense of submitting yourself fully to His Word? If so, you're missing out on God's blessing and receiving the kind of grace from Him that comes no other way. We cannot have places where we go, well, I know that God's Word says, however, I'm going to do X, Y, Z. Right? Whenever we do that, we're not only about to experience the consequences of that rebellion, but we're also going to miss the tremendous blessing that could have been ours had we submitted and obeyed and yielded our heart to God. Amen? So believe, yield, obey. Have your attitude be, may it be to me as God has spoken to me through His Word. Amen? Alright, let's pray. God our Father, that You would be pleased to save the likes of us is one of the more majestic testimonies to Your grace that there could possibly be. Father, we are not impressive people, any of us. We're not all that smart. We're not all that wealthy. We're not all that wise. We're not all that powerful. We're not counted of much account in the world's eyes. But Father, You look at us and see Your precious treasures. 
you look at us and see people whom you sent your Son to die for their sins and to be raised from the dead to give them new life that you could bring us into your family. And Father, we're amazed by your grace. Help us to be continually amazed. And help us then to live yielded to your word, just as Mary was. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.